You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. We're going to talk about marriage this morning. I know you've been in a series on marriage. And let me just say for you singles, I hope you've been taking notes because I know some of you singles are hoping that one day marriage will be in your future. There is no better time to be understanding what the Bible says about marriage than before you are married. You don't want to start thinking about it after your marriage. You After you're married, you want to think about it ahead of time. So take good notes and let that inform your process, your selection process as you as you date and as you uh, think about marriage. If you're here this morning and you are married, I hope what we're going to talk about is going to be helpful for you because marriage can be tough. Now, but here's the, here's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning uh, as, we, as we dive into God's Word. Have you noticed that there are people who live near you, maybe neighbors, maybe co-workers, people who don't go to church and they have a happy marriage. Have you noticed that? And have you seen that there are some people who go to church and they don't have a happy marriage? Wouldn't you think that the way it's supposed to be is that all people going to church have happy marriages and all people who don't go to church have miserable marriages? That's how we think it ought to be, but it doesn't work out that way. And the reason it doesn't work out that way is because marriage is a common grace from God. God made marriage, and just like God made the sun, and everybody gets to the warmth of the sun, God made marriage, and everybody who steps into marriage and, and who does it at least, at least partially God's way, they're going to enjoy some benefits from that. So the question is, Shouldn't there be something about Christian marriages that make them different and distinct from the marriages of non-Christians? Shouldn't there be something that makes our marriages different? I think there should be. And, and this takes me back to a trip I went on years ago when I was in college. I was a new Christian and some friends and I took a road trip from Tulsa where I was going to college all the way out to Pasadena, California. I'd never been to California. I was really looking forward to being there. And we were going to stay. One of my buddies had friends who lived out there who had agreed to open their home and let college kids just sleep on the floor or wherever we could, could sleep. And I didn't know these people, didn't know much about them. I just knew my friend knew them. And, and I knew from my friend that they were Christians. Well, when we got to their home, I met them for the first time. And I have to tell you, within 15 minutes, I felt like I was with old friends. And this was, this was kind of new to me. They had been strangers and within 15 minutes, we felt like we were friends because they were welcoming, they were warm, they were glad to see us, they opened their home to us, the hospitality was sweet. And I just thought, this is, this is remarkable. And then I read this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter two. And it kind of dawned on me what had happened. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, thanks be to God who in Christ is always leading us in triumphal procession. And through us, watch this, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Here's what I realized. I'd stepped into a house that smelled like God. You could smell God in that house by the way these people acted. 
And it ought to be true for all of us that our lives ought to be giving off an aroma, a fragrance, so that when people are around us, they go, something smells nice here. Something feels different. Something feels warm and welcoming. So how's your marriage smell, right? Does it stink? Does it cause people not to want to be near you? Or is it warm and inviting? Is it the kind of marriage that when people see it, they're drawn to it rather than pushed away from it? Does your marriage have the aroma of Christ? I want to suggest to you that there are three things that would make your marriage distinctly Christian. And if these things are true about your marriage, you will have the aroma of Christ in your marriage. Here's the first thing. Every Christian marriage ought to have a different purpose, a distinctly different purpose. Here's the second thing. We ought to have a different understanding of ourselves. And the third thing is we ought to have a different kind of love. So that's our outline, okay? Those three things ought to be true about us, a different purpose, a different understanding of ourselves, and a different kind of love. Let's talk about having a different purpose. Did you marry with a purpose in mind? Most of us had superficial reasons for getting married. I am among those who had superficial reasons for getting married. I got married because I thought my life would be better and happier if I had Marianne with me all the time than it would be as a single person. And I wanted to have sex, okay? That's why I got married. I'm just, I'm being honest with you. You may have gotten married with different purposes in mind for you. Some people, they get married, they say, we just, we just were in love. We just couldn't imagine being apart. We just wanted to be together all the time. So why is it that people who just wanted to be together all the time get married and then they don't want to be together all the time, right? Why, why does that go away? Well, well, part of the reason is because we didn't understand what real love was. We thought it's something you fall into. We thought it was an emotional euphoria instead of understanding that it's grit and it's, it's grind and it's work and it's hard, but it's, it's great. Okay, that's one superficial reason. Some people get married just because they've been dating long enough. I mean, there ought to be an expiration date on your dating, right? <laughs> I mean, there comes a point where it's like, okay, fish or cut bait, we're, we're done here. I talked to a couple one time, and we, I was hearing the story of how he had proposed to her, and uh, he said, he started to tell the story, and I said, well, wait just a second, did, did, I said to her, did you know he was going to propose this weekend? And she said, I did. I said, how did you know? She said, because it was the date. I said, what did you mean? She said, when we started dating, on our second date, I said, hang on, I like you. You have six months to figure out whether you like me. said, six months from now, we either stop dating or you propose. He said it was the best thing anybody could have said to him because he was happy just kind of in that perpetual, let's just keep dating for a while. Some of you dating people here, right? You need to have a conversation this afternoon, okay? <laughs> just saying. So some people get married because time's up. We ought to get married now. Some people get married because there are economic benefits to it. Some people get married because they think, I'll have food and laundry and housekeeping service right there at the home, right? Some people get married because they think it's going to cure their loneliness. Let me tell you, let me tell you that uh, there are lonely people in marriage. Some of the loneliest people I've met are married people. So it's not an automatic cure for loneliness. Some people get married because the clock is ticking. 
right? Some people get married because it'll get their parents off their back. Some people get married because they want to escape their parents. Some people get married because they think it'll help them in business. Some people get married because uh, they're, they're in trouble. They're pregnant. And that's why they get married. Those are not the re- when, when God created marriage, it was not for these purposes that God created it. He didn't say you should get married so it'll help your business or so you can have food and laundry service. God had a different purpose in mind for marriage, but here's the thing. Most of our reasons for getting married were self-centered, not God-centered. I mean, it was for me. I was a Christian, but I thought of marriage as being fundamentally, primarily about my happiness. I would be happier married than I would be unmarried. That's why I want to get married. It was all about me. And most of us continue to view our marriage through a self-centered lens. I asked a group of people one time, a group of pastors, I said, if you were going to speak to people on marriage from the Bible and you couldn't use the two big chapters, Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, those are the two big marriage chapters, couldn't use those passages, you had to use something else. I said, what verses would you use? And I got a variety of answers. I got good stuff. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's a good one, right? I got people sharing with me other marriage advice. But two pastors gave me a verse from Psalms that I hadn't thought about in a marriage context before, and I thought, that is brilliant. They pointed me to Psalm 34.3, which says this, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. <laughs> that one of them said, that's the verse I used to propose with. And I said, dang, I should have used that one to propose with, right? <laughs> We all should use that to propose with because that's what marriage is supposed to be about. Let's together magnify the Lord and exalt his name. We can do that better together than we can do separately. That's the purpose for marriage. Our purpose is to magnify the Lord. What does that mean to magnify? Well, when you magnify, you take, actually, the way magnification works, there's a microscope and there's a telescope, right? In a microscope, you, something that is small looks bigger. In a telescope, something that's big, you get a bigger view of. Telescope toward the moon, it's a big thing. It's still not as big when you look through the telescope, but it looks bigger to you in the telescope, right? Magnification of the moon is what we're talking about here. God is big. When you magnify him, you make him look bigger to everybody else. That's what it means to magnify the Lord. Or we talk about glorifying God. That just means that it it makes God look good. Now listen, God is good. He doesn't need you to make him look good. When you make him look good, he doesn't get better. He's already good. All you do when you make him look good is you, you point people, people look at you and go, what is it about your marriage? You say, it's God. He looks bigger now. He looks greater. He looks more powerful. That's what it means to glorify God. The first and primary purpose for your marriage should be so that when people look at you, they marvel at how great God is. They see the glory of God. Paul Tripp said, God made us to live our lives upward and outward. Most of us live our lives inward. We're so focused on what's inside of us that we're not thinking about how do we focus on God? How do we focus on others? If we would live our lives upward and outward, it would reorient us. It would take care of a lot of the issues in our marriage. See, God made our marriage so that your marriage would be a model. 
It would be a display, it would put on display something that people can't see about God otherwise. You know what a model home is in a subdivision, right? The builder puts up this really nice home, puts all of the extras in it so that when you walk in, you go, oh, this is nice. I would like a home like this. That's his goal when he puts that home together. God gave marriage to man so that people, when they see it, they go, ooh, this looks good. I would like this. That's what it says in Genesis 2, 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now listen to me carefully. God is three persons in perfect unity, three in one, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three are one. How can that be? You say, I don't know. Well, God took a man and a woman, and at the end of Genesis, he brought them together in marriage, and the two became what? One. One flesh joined together. Still two distinct persons, but now there's a oneness. When we display oneness and unity in our marriage, we are giving people a glimpse into the triune nature of God that, that puts that on display. It's a model of that for people. But if if there's not oneness in your marriage like there is in the Godhead, then something about that picture is distorted. So part of what God wants us to do is to put, to have oneness in our marriage that puts his glory on display. And that oneness is also a testimony to the fact that God's power is in us because we can't achieve oneness on our own. Philippians 2 says this, do everything without grumbling or disputing. Does that sound like your marriage? Everything without grumbling and disputing? And by the way, the word there for all things means all things, okay? In case you were wondering. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Why should we do that? So you'll have a happier marriage? You will, but that's not why. Here's why. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life. See, when you do everything without grumbling and complaining, you're a light to the world. People go, I can see what it's supposed to look like now. The purpose, the first purpose of marriage is that you would glorify God. And there are three groups of people who are watching carefully to see and to learn from you about that. Here's the first group. The first group is your kids. Your kids are paying careful attention to how the two of you get along and they are drawing conclusions about life, about love, and about God based on how the two of you get along in marriage. If your marriage is harmonious and one, then your kids see something great about God. If your marriage is fractured, if there's anger, if there's discord, if there's discontent, if there's isolation in your marriage, then your kids get a distorted picture of the goodness of God. I, I'm going to read you a note that came from an 18-year-old girl to our office. She said, my parents need to realize before they can talk to me about God's love for us, they need to show me God's love for one another. It's futile for them to try to tell me about a God who loves me when they can't get along. She understands. There's something false and hypocritical about saying to our kids, God is, God is great and God loves you and God wants us to love one another, but I can't get along with your dad. That distorts 
the gospel. So the first purpose of marriage is to put his goodness on display. Your kids are watching. They're not the only ones. Younger couples are watching. All of us do this. Marianne and I, and by the way, my wife is here. Sweetheart, would you stand up and just uh, let everybody welcome you? There's Marianne in the back there. My wife and I have been married coming on 38 years next month. And in our marriage, we're still looking ahead at older couples to get a picture of how we do the next chapter well. We all do this. When we were married for two years, we were looking at the couples who'd been married five years. And five years looking at the couples doing seven. And we look around and we go, who's married? Now, we didn't do this consciously, but subconsciously we're going, who looks like they have a decent marriage? And let's Take them out to lunch. Let's do something. Let's find out what they're doing. If you are past the honeymoon, you've been married long enough that there are younger couples who can learn from you, okay? So here's what you ought to do. Find a younger couple and invite them over to dinner next week. And just say, no agenda, but in the middle of dinner, just say, how's your marriage? And if they say, well, we're doing really great, then you say to them, okay, then maybe you can help us with some of the issues we got in our marriage, right? <laughs> See, that's the thing. People don't invite other people over for dinner because they think, no, our marriage, we, we don't have anything we can teach anybody. We've all got stuff. We're, we're all, let, let's all say this together. My marriage is a mess. Say it. My marriage is a mess. Okay. Let, now that we've agreed that there's messiness in our marriage, that we don't do it perfectly, that's okay. We can grow and learn together. And, and it's, your marriage is going to be a mess till you die. So just get, get in for the ride. Just, just make it to the finish line. It'll get better in heaven. Okay, Let, that's how this works. <laughs> the, the, the Bible actually tells us to be intentional about helping younger couples in marriage. It says to wives in Titus 2 that the older women, and by the way, if there's a woman younger than you, then you're an older woman. Older women are to encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, older men are to urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. This is our instructions. These, these are the things we're, we're to have learned and to be able to pass on to others. We're still learning. Pass on what you know to younger couples. They're watching your marriage. And be intentional about this, too. Third group that's watching your marriage is everyone in your community. <laughs> your coworkers, the people in your neighborhood, everybody's paying attention to what other marriages look like. The remarkable witness of a healthy, intact marriage in this culture, it's dramatic because people in this culture look around and they don't see many examples of that. You know, I, I, I'm of the generation that there used to be daytime talk shows where they would bring all the dysfunctional people on and just let them fight with each other, right? And we'd, we'd call that entertainment. I think there's a day coming when there'll be talk shows and they'll go, today, we have a remarkable couple. They, they're married and they like each other. And people go, I gotta watch this. <laughs> you don't see this very often. I, I, let me read you an, uh, an email that we got at our office from a listener to our radio program, Family Life Today. She said, I'm sitting here at work. I'm listening to Family Life on the internet. 
I've been listening to the stories of couples that have been given hope through your ministry. And even though I'm not married, you've given me hope too. I've become so terrified of marriage because I just can't see how two people can really know each other, uh, can really love each other for the rest of their lives. And even though I know that when a man and woman commit their relationship and each other to God, God will bless them with a love for each other, I just hardly ever see it. She went on to say, my parents, who were married for almost 34 years, finalized their divorce on January 13th. I remember Christmas Day. I was sitting at the kitchen table eating dinner, reading over a draft of my parents' divorce decree. And I didn't care. It didn't bother me that my parents were getting divorced. It didn't bother me that a promise made before God was being broken. Oh, yes, it did. Oh, yes, it did. She's, she's just trying to talk herself out of it because she goes on to say, I'm afraid of ending up the same way. Of course it bothered her. She said, I'm afraid of being willing to walk away from a loveless marriage rather than being committed to improving it. That's led me to a fear of marriage in general. It's not completely gone. There is now a smidgen of hope as I listen to you. Thank you. I'm just telling you, those kinds of stories are out there. People, a lot of young people, do you know why the average age for getting married today is 27 and a half for women and 29 for young men? The average age, the reason for that is because they're scared to death to make a commitment because how many people have they seen be able to live it out? That's why we need to show them you can do this and there's great joy in the midst of it. That's what your marriage should look like. It'll glorify God and put it on display for others. So our marriage should have a fundamentally different purpose. It should glorify God and there are people watching. Here's the second thing that should make our marriages distinctively Christian, we should have an accurate assessment, an honest assessment of ourselves. An honest assessment of ourselves. Here's the thing about marriage. When you got married, you married a person who is at his core or her core selfish. You, you weren't thinking that when you got married. You did not stand at the altar thinking this person is so selfish, right? That is not what you were thinking. And the reason you weren't thinking that is because during the dating phase, you just lied to each other about how unselfish you were. Now, seriously, think about this. When you were dating, every time you were getting together, here's what you were thinking. I want this person to like me, so I will be on my best behavior. And so what we saw of each other in the dating phase was the best we had. We put the best forward because we wanted the other person to like us. And then we got married and we thought, gotcha, done. <laughs> and we quit thinking about putting the best forward and we started thinking about, give me more of your best. Just give me some more of that, right? We just reverted to the reality, the reality of our selfishness. Were we selfish before? Yeah, we just kept that hidden. We knew that would be unattractive. But now it just oozes out in marriage and we can see the reality of our selfishness. Paul Tripp said this, he said, my problem in marriage is not that I don't love my wife enough, my problem in marriage is that I don't love God enough. When I don't love God enough, I put myself in his place and I demand that the world and my marriage revolve around me. 
You see, that's the selfishness issue that we've got. An honest assessment needs to be that we recognize the fundamental sinful selfishness that's inside each one of us. You need to be able, we'll just say it out loud together. Say, I am selfish. Say that. I am selfish. Some of your spouses never heard you say that before, okay? Look at them and say, I am selfish. And then some of you wanted to say, you are selfish. That's not what you're supposed to say. (laughs) No, it's I am selfish, right? Let me read to you. I found this tweet this week. Let me pull this up. Pastor Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York. He says, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in my marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. You want a truly great marriage? It starts by saying, the biggest problem in my marriage is me. Now, you don't think the biggest problem in your marriage is you. And Jesus knew you wouldn't think that way. In the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus said. You can see clearly the selfishness speck in your spouse's eye, but what you can't see clearly is the selfishness log in your own eye. Each of you need to deal with the selfishness log in your own eye before you should do anything about the selfishness speck in somebody else's eye. So the focus of our marriage needs to be this honest self-assessment that says, you know, at my heart, in, in, my, in the heart of hearts, I just want life to go the way I want it to go. I want to be in control. I want to be in charge. I want it to revolve around me. And that's a problem when it comes to marriage. It's a problem when it comes to God. And the way I fix that is I don't try to make myself God, I let God be God, I love him the most, and then my marriage starts to work around that. So we have to have this honest self-assessment. By the way, this selfishness, this is nothing new. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, said this, he said, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one, we have each one turned, where? To his own way. That's what we're all after. I want it my way. The culture says, have it your way. God says, do it my way. So that's the issue, selfishness. The third thing that's gonna make your marriage distinctively Christian is that you're gonna have a different kind of love for one another. Our love should be a fundamentally different kind of love for one another. Now your neighbors love one another, but it's back to the old definition of love. I please you, you please me, let's make a deal kind of love is what we've got. I will, I'll do the laundry for you if you will be nice to the kids, right? It's that kind of, of cooperation in marriage. And maybe every once in a while our passions get stirred. Maybe every once in a while we see something that makes us kind of feel sentimental toward the other person, but that's all we think love is. For Christians, we should have a different kind of love. And let me give you the different characteristics. First, we should have a self-sacrificing, not a self-serving love. Our love should be self-sacrificing. I would die for you, not self-serving, which is do this for me. In in fact, the Bible makes this clear in, in Philippians 2 again. Paul writes to the church, he says, complete my joy. He he was their church planting pastor. He said, you will make me joyful, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, Now we think of that as church talk, that's marriage talk. Paul says, my joy will be complete when your marriages are of the same mind, you have the same love, you're in full accord, you're of one mind, and then look, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I believe you apply that verse, 95% of marriage issues go away. If the only conflict in your marriage was this, you're more important than me. No, you're more important than me. And that's what you're fighting about? That'll be great. (laughs) But that's not what we're fighting about, is it? No, if we would apply that, if we would say, listen, your needs, your wants, your desires, your priorities are more important than mine. Under the framework that we're here to glorify God, now I'm here to serve you, that would make a huge difference in most marriages. And we have to have a kind of love that is outlined for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know the love chapter in the Bible, right? The famous love chapter. It lists what real love looks like. Paul says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, let's go back to that. Let's put your name and your marriage in there. In my marriage, we are patient and kind. We don't envy or boast. We're not arrogant or rude with each other. We don't insist on our own way. We're not irritable or resentful. Now, I, I can quit right there, and most of you have dropped out of the competition, right? Because you already go, no, no wait, I, can, I, I don't match up to that. But it goes on. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's a remarkable kind of love. That's a love. Here's how, here's how you have to, in order to have that kind of love in your marriage, here's what you have to do. You have to receive that kind of love from God. It has to flood who you are, and then it has to spill out to the other person. That kind of love, you can't conjure that up. You can't go home and say, I'm going to try to be more patient and kind. If you go home today and say, I'm going to try to be more patient and kind, the, the devil goes home with you and says, I'm going to trip you up, right? He thinks you, you just called a competition. I'm going to see if I can throw that. And that's why you wake up in the morning and say, I'm not going to get angry today. And halfway through the day, you got angry and you go, you go like that. And the devil goes, I told you I could beat you. But if you go home today and say, God, I can't do this. I need your love. I need to know your love. I need to experience that. I need to have it flood my being and then let the overflow come out to my spouse and my being. If you're having a problem loving others, you don't understand God's love well. You're not experiencing the love of God. That's how that happens. You need to have a different kind of love than your neighbors have. You also need to have a different kind of forgiveness. You need a gracious and forgiving love, not a hard-hearted love. Forgiveness is a key ingredient. If you can't forgive your spouse, you're in for a long ride because you will regularly, daily sin against one another, regularly, daily offend the other person. If you can't forgive, you're in trouble. Paul says this, he says, be angry, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I love this and give no opportunity to the devil. You hear what Paul's saying there? He's saying when you allow anger to just manifest itself and be present in your marriage on an ongoing basis, when you're not resolving conflict, you are in league with the devil. You've joined Satan's team and said, I'm with you, buddy. Is that where you want to be in your marriage? No, you're giving the devil an opportunity to destroy what God has brought together. So you have to resolve conflict quickly. You say, I don't know how to do it. There are people here who can help you. There's counseling here for you at this church. I'm so grateful 
for the ministry of this church and how they'll work with you to walk, to teach you God's way of dealing with these issues. But you've got to have a heart that says, I need to forgive. And the same thing that's true about self-sacrificing love, the only way you can forgive somebody else is to understand how much you've been forgiven. It's to understand what God's done for you. And you receive that and you let it spill out to somebody else. It has to be God's forgiveness for you spilling out to your spouse. If you're having a hard time forgiving your spouse, you don't understand God's forgiveness for you fully. Here's the third thing that ought to be different about our love. It ought to be, oh, I, I, I missed a verse. I missed Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It is not an option, it's a command. The Bible never says forgive if you can. The Bible never says, if you feel like it, forgive. The Bible says, forgive. In fact, God says, if you fail to forgive your brother, there's no forgiveness for you. That's how central to the idea of, of the gospel is forgiveness. Here's the third kind of love. Our love ought to be a spirit-controlled love, not a flesh-controlled love. Our love ought to be a love that is the work of the spirit in us coming out to others. It's not something that we manufacture. It's something that God's Spirit manufactures. In Ephesians 4, the Bible says, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urging the church to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, we read that verse and we think he's talking about how Christians ought to get along with other Christians. And we apply it in church. That fits home too. It's Christians getting along with other Christians at home and you do go to church with the person you're sitting next to, right? So it should be that in your relationship with one another, there's humility and gentleness and patience that you're bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here's what that verse takes. To do that, you have to be continually putting off selfish impulses and continually turning to God and saying, God, help me. God, help me live this out. Help me walk this way. And then you take the first step. C.S. Lewis said the best way to acquire a virtue is to act like you already have it. So if you, you say, I'm not a patient person, okay, pretend you are for a day. And then the next day, pretend again. And pretty soon you'll be a patient person. Well, I'm an angry person. Okay, pretend tomorrow that you're not. Acquire that virtue. Put off the sinful patterns and instead turn to God and say, help me walk the way I'm supposed to be walking in my marriage. And it's going to take the Spirit. I'm, I'm going to read a passage from Colossians chapter 3. I know we're, we're diving through a lot of scripture here real fast. I'm going to read a passage from Colossians 3, and I'm going to ask you, as we're reading through this, does this sound like your marriage? And if not, maybe you ought to memorize this and ask God to make this true about your marriage as you start to act some of these ways. Here's what it says. Put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other. And uh, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, 
Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Is that a description of your marriage? Are there areas where you can grow there? Pick out one or two things where you could say, I could improve in that area, and start to act that way this week with God's help in the power of the Spirit. God will meet you. If you'll start every day by saying, Lord, today I want to be a more uh, patient person. God will meet you in that. You just make that your prayer throughout the day and see if God doesn't give you the energy, the power, the impulse to do that. If I had to sum up the different kind of love we ought to have for one another, I'd use these three words, commitment, humility, and selflessness. Our love should be a committed love, a humble love, and a selfless love. If you got that going for you, you're on the right track. But I want you to think about this as we wrap up our time together. For this to work, here's what you're gonna need to do. You're gonna have to re-believe the gospel every day. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Most of us think that believing the gospel is something we do at the beginning of our Christian journey. We hear the gospel, we hear about God's love for us in sending his son who died for us. We hear about the fact that Jesus bore our sin on the cross and then that he showed the power of being able to triumph over the grave. We hear that and we go, I believe that. We surrender our lives to Jesus and we think now I move on to other things. No, you don't. Every day you have to re-believe that that's true. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. In your marriage, every day you're gonna mess up. And so in your marriage, every day, you're gonna to have to remember, remember the great gospel promise that when you mess up, God forgives. That's great good news. That every day when you mess up, there is a loving, compassionate God who stands ready. He has already forgiven you for what you've done. The slate is wiped clean, it's a new beginning. Right there. Now, you still have to respond to that. You still have to turn away from sin. You still have to re walk in his forgiveness, but he's already given it. The good news of the gospel is you can be forgiven every day because of what Christ has done. You need to believe that every day. So when you mess up, Satan will come and he will say, oh, you messed up again. You're no good at this. You listen to that voice, you're on the wrong path. But when you mess up, if you hear God saying, I forgive you, let's get on to to the new life. That's re-believing the gospel. Here's the second thing. Every day, you will look at your life and say, I need to change. Well, the promise of the gospel is that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He's turning you into Jesus. You gotta re-believe that every day. Every day, you gotta say, God's at work making me more like his son. And I may have stumbled and I may have, God's forgiven me for that, but I can be a different person because of the power, the same power that raised Jesus from death to life lives in me. I can be a different person. And here's the third reason you need to re-believe the gospel every day, because every day you'll experience something where you go, this is hopeless. And the, do you think the disciples felt hopeless as they stood and looked at their savior on the cross? Sure they did. Three days later, were they hopeless? No, because Jesus was raised from the, dead, from the dead, and that power lives in you. You're never out of hope for your marriage. You're never out of hope for yourself. 
because the gospel says the promise of hope is a part of the promise of the gospel. Forgiveness, transformation, and hope. You need to remember every day that that's what God has given you in Christ, in the gospel, and you need to re-believe that every day. I'm gonna wrap up by showing you a, a remarkable video. Back 20 years ago, 20, it's been 25 years ago now, Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina. And he had been there as president for a, a number of years. God had used his ministry in significant ways. But in 1988, his wife Muriel, they were on a trip together and uh, she told a joke to him and it, it kind of bothered him because it was a joke she had told him 15 minutes earlier. And she, he turned to her and said, well, sweetheart, you just told me that joke. And she just smiled and laughed. And that was the first time that he started to realize maybe something's going on with Muriel. And over the next few years, it became obvious that she had Alzheimer's. And it was beginning progressively worse. And he reached a point in 1991 where he came to the students and the faculty at the university and he said, I'm gonna to have to step down because I have something higher that God has called me to do than being the president of this university. Here's what he said during his resignation speech. Watch this. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror, and when she can't get to me, there can be anger, she's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. Dr. McQuilkin went home and cared for his wife for the next seven, eight years, even after the time that she was uncommunicative, all the way up to her death. That's a different kind of love. That's a love that has a different kind of purpose. That's a self-emptying, self-sacrificing love that says you're more important than me. Pray with me that all of our marriages can reflect that kind of love. Father, thank you for these friends. Thank you for their attentiveness this morning. Thank you that you've been at work in this place. Lord, for those who 
are struggling in marriage, I pray that they would recognize that there is forgiveness, that you have the power for transformation and that there is hope. Even when they feel hopeless, nothing is beyond your ability to repair. And Lord, I pray that the marriages in this place would be a testimony to your goodness, not only in this church, but to this community. I pray that men and women would be a model of your glory by how they love and serve one another. And that this church would be a light to this whole community of the power and the glory of God. I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.